Our first scripture reading this morning is from the third chapter of the letter of Paul to the Philippians, found on page 187 in the New Testament of the Pew Bible. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word.
From the Gospel according to John, the 12th chapter. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. When you come forward for communion later in our service this morning, there is a small bowl on the communion table that contains some cloth which has been permeated with the oil of nard. When you opened your Lenten boxes, for those who were able to take them home through this Lenten season, you found a small piece of cloth also permeated with the same aromatic spice, spike nard from India, an olfactory experience that Jesus had at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home when his feet were anointed. But Judas, Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was going to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you but you do not always have me. The Gospel of the Lord. Pray with me. In all of the senses that beg for our attention, O Lord, may we smell the sweet-smelling fragrance of your love, of your giving yourself for us. And may we be embraced by that which is beautiful, even in this season of passion. Amen. Fragrance is not one of those things that we use very often in our worship services. We use sight. We use sound. We use touch, as we will in a few moments in the laying on of hands for the rite of ordination. We even use taste, as we have the bread and the cup for communion. But fragrance, scent, it's almost perceived as a little distracting, a little too primal for us to indulge in in our undecidedly rational form of worship. Ours is an experience of the mind, of the head, deep thought. A rhyming word drives our experience, but the power of odor (laughs) is set aside in the arsenal of our inspiration. Wander with me into any Orthodox church anywhere in the world, and the power of incense permeates that experience. In a high church Episcopal worship in many Roman Catholic parishes, Sweet-smelling incense smoke rises into the air as a symbol of the permeating mystical presence of the Holy Spirit. 
the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke leading the children of Israel across the wilderness, the smell of the seared meat or roasting grain filled the ancient temple of the Hebrew religion, the rising smoke seen as a sacrificial offering that goes up and up and up even into the nostrils of God. The Apostle Paul referenced the aroma as a response to the gifts of both the Philippian and Ephesian churches, saying that their gifts to support his ministry were a sweet-smelling savor as unto the Lord. Aroma works both ways. There are pleasing smells, and there are unpleasing smells. The Hebrew word translated as anger, anger literally means to flare one's nostrils. It is a term for the nose that when you're angry, your nose nostrils flare in disgust. In the book of Hosea, uh, chapter 8, verse 5, the prophet says his disgust with the people of Samaria, and it is traditionally translated, I have rejected your calf god, and my anger burns against you. But in the Hebrew, the quite literal sense of the translation is this, your calf god stinks. Makes sense, doesn't it? Calf god would stink. Your calf god stinks, Samaria, and I am flaring my nostrils at you. Powerful image of the aromatic bringing a visceral response, the power of scent. It rouses our memory to connection and to place. Do you remember when you were a little kid and you'd go over to your friend's house to play and their house smelled funny? It didn't smell like your house. Their house smelled different. Now, I learned years later that it had to do with what fabric softener they were using and whether or not they used air freshener and whether or not somebody in the house smoked or they had a fireplace. But you'd walk in and it just wasn't smelling a a home. And then after you'd been away from home for a while, maybe off at college, you'd come home and there was something about that familiar aroma of home and family and meals being prepared that just gave you that sense of place. Now, odor is too provocative, too evocative, almost too sensual. The power of scent, almost too passionate to be considered as a tool of our rational Presbyterian worship. That's what Judas decided, his whole take on the event there in Bethany. It was a dinner party. Jesus had, after all, risen Lazarus from the dead. Remember the warning when he told the groundskeeper to open the tomb when Lazarus had already been buried? The response was, he's been in there three days. Don't open the stone. He will stink. But Jesus prevails, and the tomb is opened, and Lazarus comes forth fully alive. And now his sisters, Mary and Martha, no longer consigned to being single, impoverished women because their brother can labor and prevent their destitution. Their brother was now alive. Why not have a banquet for the friend that made it so? It was one week before the Passover, a reference in the Gospel of John to help us understand something that we maybe wouldn't catch. 
Passover was the season of unleavened bread. And you began the Passover celebration by sweeping your house of all leavening, all yeast. And so the week before the Passover, oh my goodness, the yeasty rising bread in the fire would have been one of the smells that filled the house in Bethany. Mary had purchased a special gift for Jesus. We know from Monday, Thursday of the tradition of washing of the feet. Jesus washed the feet for the disciples because no one would lower themselves to do that. And so he did it for them. You would come in the inside and all of the dirt and filth of the streets outside would be cleansed from your feet so that then you could walk on the cushions and the carpets of the home without trailing that outside muck in. And so Jesus' feet were washed as was the custom, except Mary had a special gift. She broke open an alabaster ampule and poured oil of nard on his feet, massaging it into the calluses and into the crevices of his unsandaled toes and heel and foot. And the aroma filled the air, and she dried his feet with her hair as if to absorb that same glorious aroma onto herself. Profoundly sensual, deeply passionate, arousing Judas a sense of indignity, too indulgent, reckless, inconsiderate to the rational world. She should have spent that money on the poor. That would have been the reasonable choice. It's John that reminds us that Judas's motives were not so pure. If the cash would have come to him, he probably would have skimmed some off the top for his own purpose. But never mind that for now, Jesus says. You can help the poor anytime. Don't insult her kindness. She's preparing for my burial. A sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. There are times, I must confess, when reason just doesn't do it. When a depth of passion needs more than just an intellectual disputation. Candles, perfumes, scented oils. When I was dating Danny, I did not know her deep affection for candles and incense in her own private space. And so when she would have me over for dinner and I'd walk into the living room and there would be candles and and incense I had in my mind that this was going to be a significantly more interesting evening until I found out that she did so even when she was just alone because she liked to be surrounded by flickering light and aroma. It's a reminder that all too easy when it comes to religion we retreat into our brains. Passion is just too dangerous, too much, too distracting. But the word passion, the passion of the Christ, next Sunday begins Passion Week. The depth of passion needs more than just our brains to be engaged. We are engaged as our whole selves, as was Jesus. Now, our own Reformed tradition is long-eyed with suspicion, religious zeal that was deemed far too emotional. Revivals and holy dancing and tears and cries of ecstasy are dismissed as sentimental manipulation. 
In fact, our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church, divided in the middle of the 19th century into what was called old-school Presbyterianism that was all about the catechisms and learning the questions and answers of the faith, and new-school Presbyterianism that opened the possibility that there could be an emotional response, split our tradition down the middle. Even the Chicago Presbytery had two different offices for a brief time until they bridged one another and became again one Presbyterian church in the region. But the fear was that emotionality and passion and sensuality might override the superior understanding of hearing and perceiving the word. Ours is a learned ministry where expense is calculated and we have to do the most good for the most people. One of the things that the congregation receives each year is a budget because we are a rational people. And yet, and yet, there is a strain of our faith that encounters salvation with deep unrestrained passion where a woman forgiven much whose dead brother has been restored to her pours out a most expensive a most fragrant a most extravagant gift at the feet of her life restoring friend Consider again the words of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is the one that has given us this understanding of a learned religion that was justification by faith through uh, justification by grace through faith. The reasoning is where we hold up Paul as a bulwark of what it means to be Christianly. Except in today's reading, hear the passion that lies underneath of his words when he says. Yet whatever gains I had, these I come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and sharing of His sufferings by becoming like Him in His death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Do you feel the sensuality of those words? It's not a rational argument. It is a deep, guttural passion about love and gift and hope. We celebrate the incarnation, the birth of Christ, the infleshing of the divine. Jesus was not the embodiment of an idea to bridge the oncological gap between a holy God and a corruptible humanity. John's first letter, we read how the disciples looked upon him, they gazed at him, they beheld his glory, they touched his shoulder, they heard his voice, they saw his face, they tasted the fish and the bread and the wine, and they smelled the ointment as it filled the house in Bethany. 
when Christ died, it was a body that was killed. It wasn't the logical necessity of a substitutionary atonement. It was the physical, sensual body aware of sight and sound and taste and touch and smell. And while these bodies of ours are corruptible, they are also the very perceiving form of Jesus. We can think all we want. And there is a place and a time for reason and thought to form arguments, to settle disputations and the like, to satisfy the mind. We can dismiss the scent of fragrant, loving oil, as did Judas. But by leaving our faith in our heads, we miss the depth of Christ's passion. Amen. Please uh, stand and join with me in the affirmation of our faith, the very cogent words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary.